This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hello and welcome to the BT Techno podcast. I'm Brian Ashenden and I have the pleasure of leading the BT Technical Services team, a group of qualified individuals who are able to answer any technical advice strategy queries you may have for your clients. Now this week, rather than delve into a specific technical issue or technical topic, I thought it was worth reflecting on a recent webinar that was provided by Matt Manning, one of BT's technical consultants, talking about the topic of love and marriage. Now, in that life stage strategy-based session, Matt discussed the financial advice opportunities that could arise as a result of a client finding their life partner, including issues related to property and asset ownership, savings goals, and of course, superannuation strategies. Now, after that session, there were a number of questions that came up that Matt considered. So for this week's podcast, I'm going to hand it over to Matt to explore those issues in further detail. Matt, over to you. On the 2nd of February, I delivered episode 43 of our fortnightly webinar series titled Love and Marriage. If you're interested but miss, you can still watch on demand by clicking on this session in the webinars menu of BT Academy. There are a few questions from advisors during and after the session, which is great, for this podcast addresses five subsequent questions I received. Question one, is someone qualified to use the first home super saver scheme if their spouse has already owned property? And the answer is yes, subject to the other criteria. This is because eligibility for the scheme is assessed on an individual basis. This means that even if the new main residence being purchased will be owned in joint names with a spouse who does not qualify because they've already owned property, the eligible owner can still access eligible contributions that they've made to super since 1 July 2018. However, please do remember that eligible contributions for first-time super saver purposes are only salary sacrifice and personal contributions. With personal contributions including non-concessional contributions and personal concessional contributions, that is personal contributions claimed as a tax deduction. All other types of contributions such as super guarantee are not eligible to be accessed under the first home super saver scheme. Question two, you mentioned that spouse contribution splitting is limited to the lesser of 85% of concessional contributions and the amount of the concessional cap for the relevant financial year. When would the latter apply? So one of the questions I answered during the session was if one member of a couple is eligible to utilize the concessional carry forward and does so, they can split up to 85% of their total concessional contributions. So for a client with the limit of the concessional cap, this is literally their concessional cap as opposed to the standard concessional cap. The bottom line is that if the client does not receive excess concessional contributions, the maximum amount of the spouse contribution split will always be limited to 85% of the total concessional contributions. So really the amount of the concessional cap will only ever be a constraint if the contributing spouse receives excess concessional contributions. And the follow-up to this question was, well, in which case, why does the legislation specify uh, the lesser of those amounts, 85% of the total concessional contributions and the amount of concessional cap for the relevant financial year? Uh, well, I'd say it's a bit of an anti-avoidance measure. So even though this would rarely apply in practice, if it weren't for that lesser of rule, there'd be the ability for one member of the couple with a high income and high super balance to intentionally exceed the concessional cap by a large amount, then just split 85% of this total amount and deal with the excess by releasing funds from their own super. 
So if this lesser of rule were not in place, couples would otherwise be able to artificially equalize their balances in a very short time frame by intentionally exceeding their concessional cap, which I don't think would have been the policy intent. Now, spouse contribution splitting is still often an effective way of equalizing balances between members of a couple, but in practice, we can only really do so within those constraints. But for most couples, the equalization strategy will be performed over multiple financial years, and whilst often still worth doing, even contribution splitting for many years may not result in the optimal outcome. Question three. There were quite a few questions along the lines of, can a client really apply for early access to their super under compassionate grounds when the funds are used to pay for IVF? Basically questioning how this is possible. Well, I must admit I was quite surprised when I first heard of this occurring, but whether someone satisfies the medical requirements for the compassionate grounds condition of release comes down to a medical assessment, which naturally only a qualified medical pr practitioner can decide and provide. As I understand, where doctors do decide to provide the required medical evidence, they're saying that in their medical opinion, the patient needs the IVF treatment to alleviate acute or chronic mental illness. And that's one of the subcategories when applying to access super under the medical treatment category of the Compassionate Grounds Condition of Release. Also, the ATO does specifically address IVF in a few paragraphs on their website, so in practice they definitely do consider such applications. As I covered during the session, there are a number of criteria that the client needs to satisfy in addition to supplying the medical evidence to the ATO as part of the application process. These include that the IVF expense must not have been paid, that is no reimbursements, and also that the expense can't be paid for by using savings, getting a loan, selling shares or investments or other assets. So this is the one that will rule many out because basically everyone with some level of savings or non-super investments is not going to be eligible. Also on this note, let's say if a client wants to access a super to fund IVF and can jump through all the hoops to do so. I still think there's one major consideration from a financial perspective. Now this is definitely a personal decision for the couple involved, uh, but I just question if they don't have the ability to fund the IVF via savings, assets, borrowing, etc., I think it'd be wise to consider uh, how they're going to in either increase their income or reduce their expenses in the future. Now, I think that a couple's income would rarely increase after having a baby. Um, in fact, it would be common for their income to decrease due to one or both members of the couple taking some time off paid work or reducing their hours. On the expenses side, well, in some cases, there may be additional childcare expenses but some may look at their current lifestyle and say, well, we won't be going out to dinner, traveling, etc., uh, anywhere near as much as we'll be caring for a baby. So this will be able to reduce our expenses. Uh, questions four and five related to the Medicare levy surcharge and were for Medicare levy surcharge purposes, uh, what is the considered an appropriate private health cover and what's the income definition? To be exempt from paying the Medicare levy surcharge, a person, and if applicable their spouse and dependent children, must be covered by a private health hospital insurance policy. That hospital cover must have an excess of $750 or less for singles and $1,500 or less for couples and families. Also for this purpose, a spouse includes a de facto spouse 
So this is as relevant for a cohabitating couple as it is married couples. That extras only policy or an ambulance policy won't suffice, and as far as ensuring the relevant excess level is not exceeded for the hospital cover, this should be stated on the policy document and quotes for any new policy. So going back to the session, uh, this was in the context of an example where for a newly cohabitating couple, person one was earning $200,000 a year and person two $50,000 a year. And admittedly, I intended to cover this in more detail during the session, but was running short of time. So what if just prior to the couple cohabitating, person one had the appropriate private hospital cover and person two did not? Whilst they were treated as two singles, the Medicare levy surcharge doesn't apply to either person as person one was exempt due to holding the appropriate private hospital cover and person two earns below the $90,000 threshold for where the threshold would apply, to, the surcharge rather would apply to a single person. However, when they start cohabitating, they're assessed as a couple and because the appropriate private hospital cover requirement also extends to spouses, the couple's entire income would be subject to the Medicare levy surcharge. Based on their combined income of 290000 this would place them in the top tier where the 1.5% rate would apply, and therefore this would cost them about $4,350 a year in Medicare levy surcharge. So the main point of this example I was trying to make is that in such scenarios, I'd suggest that just prior to cohabitating, it is at the very least worth considering having person two um, take out appropriate private hospital cover, either via their own policy or by being added to person one's existing policy. This is especially um, considering that it may well be cheaper just to pay the extra premiums than having to pay the Medicare levy surcharge. As far as the income definition, um, I received quite a few questions asking whether taxable or assessable income is used, uh, and the answer is neither. There's two different income definitions which may be relevant for this purpose. The purpose of the Medicare levy surcharge income tiers, which I displayed on a slide towards the end of the session, the income definition is called income for surcharge purposes. The starting point for this is taxable income, but then we add reportable fringe benefits, total net investment losses, and reportable super contributions. Now these include salary sacrifice and personal contributions claimed as a tax deduction, but not superannuation guarantee. Also in the rare cases where this is applicable, we then subtract super withdrawals within the low rate cap for those between preservation age and age 60. In the absence of appropriate private hospital cover and income for surcharge purposes being more than the lower threshold of the 90,000 for singles and 180,000 for couples and families, this means that they're subject to the medical levy surcharge, but the one, one and a quarter or one and a half percent rate is applied to a different income definition. This is taxable income plus affordable fringe benefits, and in the rare cases where this is applicable, we also add any amount on which family trust tax distribution has been paid. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. A number of really interesting questions that came up out of the webinar that you presented previously. And just remember that you can keep up to date with our fortnightly webinar schedules, all available via BT Academy. To register for sessions, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. When you're there, you can register for our next upcoming webinar, which will be next Wednesday, the 16th of February, 2022, 
when another of BT's resident technical experts, Tim Howard, will be presenting on SMSF residency issues, covering what trustees need to be conscious of for their SMSF to remain compliant. And at the same site, you can also view our previous webinars on demand, and all sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. And finally, please remember that if you have any technical questions, you can contact the BT Technical Services team on 1800 655 901 or send an email to technical at Until next time, bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.